0: Hello and welcome to the Truths From The Stand deer hunting podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 31. Today I'm joined by Steve Bartilla. Steve is an accomplished outdoor writer and whitetail consultant and is sharing strategies for all things deer hunting to help you tip the odds in your favor this season. So tune in. Alright, welcome back to another episode of The Truth From The Stand, Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and today we have another uh, great guest. We've got a hot show. Hot show. That's what uh, Jimmy Fallon always says. I always wanted to say that. I don't make Jimmy Fallon money, but we can still say hot show, I think. John, you down with the hot show?
1: <laughs> I like it, man. Whatever works, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, hot show today. We have on Steve Bartilla. He, I'm sure you know with all of you folks out there, he doesn't need a whole lot of introduction. Um, Steve is, you know, plainly put, he's kind of the man. Uh, he's been in the industry for a long time. He's written a bunch of books. He's on Deer and Deer Hunting TV. He writes for Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. He actually just wrote a, a great feature article in the most recent Deer and Deer Hunting magazine kind of talking about property lines and um you know how how to kind of how one should treat thy neighbor maybe is a good way to put it but uh Steve's great uh he obviously has a bunch of knowledge when it comes to habitat management and consulting and white white tail consulting so the conversation with him is going to be awesome um as just about anything that he does is and we're looking forward to that conversation but before we dive into that as always joined by my brother from another mother John Mulligan how you doing man
1: hey what's happening brother
0: uh hanging in there man just trying to grind through another week we are i don't know i saw a post the other day what are we like 74 days out from the beginning of
1: whitetail season does that sound right roughly uh yeah i guess depend let's see um well i've actually got um missouri Ooh. whitetails uh september 15th so i've got just another 35 36 days something like that
0: nice that's uh Yeah, that's pretty exciting, dude. I'm pretty, I I, like I try to hold myself off on getting all the uh, the tingly feels too early in the hunting hunting season. But uh, this, yeah, uh, yeah, this is the time of the year where it really I catch myself daydreaming all day at work, can't concentrate. I go to bed thinking about what wind am I going to get this time of year for this stand, and how am I going to access these stands? You know, one would think you would work this stuff out way in advance, but I'm I'm a little late to the party with some of that stuff, but. I'm finally kind of ramped up and ready to go, which, you know, I have a Western hunt before that. And you'd think I'd be kind of – I'm super pumped to go west, but I don't know what to expect with that trip. So, I don't have any frame of reference. So, I'm still all geeked out on Whitetail right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny because, you know, right after Missouri um, – the a week later, then I'll be heading out to Montana as well. And at least I, I have been out there before for antelope and, you know, it's not like I have to worry about, um, the back country, the hiking in and, you know, tents and that kind of stuff. I mean, for the most part, I think we're going to just slow, uh, throw sleeping bags in the back of the truck nice. and just kind of truck camp on the side of the road. So nice. it, it's not going to be too terribly, uh, terribly bad, but you know, every year, like uh, uh, people listening, you go through these steps, and you're like, "I'm going to be more prepared for this season than I was <laughs> last season." And before you know it, the season's here, and you're like, "Holy crap! I caught my pants down again!" You know? Yeah, um, exactly. It happens.
0: Yeah, I think I'm at the point where I just might not even have pants anymore. Is kind of how
1: I feel. Like I think there's that- <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, oh yeah, my shoes are off. Yeah, <laughs> shoes are off. No socks. Yeah, yeah I got my uh, feet are up. I'm rocking from the waist down.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, uh, I'm kind of in that same boat. It's, I got a lot of stuff done this year, I, um I, I think my biggest Achilles heel this year was most of the work that I need, needed to do was going to be late summerish. Because all the years that I've had most of the work where I needed to do in the spring, where it was putting in spring food plots and stuff like that, I got I right. knocked that stuff out pretty quick. But this year, all the food plotting and stuff that I'm doing is all, you know, for either fall or or winter food. And so, you know, I've been prepping plots recently, you know, and then, of course, add on the uh, the added work of, you know, I mentioned you, you know, before, you know, before we started recording that, you know, my wife and I picked up a house and that's getting ready to, you know, wrap up or close here in like two weeks. So it's like I'm getting ready to move and into a new place and all that fun stuff that comes along with it. So it's just kind of like a nice. A nice kind of smashing together of like getting ready to leave for two weeks right after we move in for a, an elk hunt in Montana and then all the white tail stuff that has to finish up plus, Oh, by the way, launch and move into a new house right before you leave for Montana. And then, Oh, by the way, when you get back whitetail season's here. So now you're gone for like the next two months.
1: <laughs> so, right. Right. Yeah, so. yeah. no, in, in, I mean, why not do that? <laughs> um, you know, why not just complicate matters? Yeah. And she's going to love you, too, because uh, oh, you better yeah. you better get get out of cardboard boxes in the first two weeks. Because if you leave her to do all that by herself, you might just want to stay in Montana.
0: Yeah, exactly, dude. I, the contractor's already been contacted for a new kitchen floor. So that's already happened. So they'll do that before we even get in there. So I'm doing a couple things, checking a couple boxes to, to, to make nice. What doesn't oh, help there you go? Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not terrible. Yeah, I, I do think of others sometimes. Um, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the kicker is those, is when we moved from Florida to here, um, the week that we moved in, I actually had, wait, no, two weeks before we moved in, I actually had surgery and I couldn't lift anything. So I couldn't help move anything. I basically was the white hat foreman just walking around pointing where people should take stuff. <laughs> And, uh, you were the
1: general contractor of the moving (laughs) operations and whatnot.
0: I totally, I totally was. So, and now this one that's, you know, we're going to move in and then I'm going to be like, Hey, I know there's a bunch of boxes laying around still, but I got to go to Montana for two weeks. I'll be back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I might need to stop by your place on the way home and cool off for maybe a week or two to let things simmer before I get home.
1: Yeah, uh, man. Yeah. Doors are always open. Uh, (laughs) I say that literally because Uh, I don't even have a key to the front door. So, um, (laughs) yeah, the door's always open, literally.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Wait,
1: no, I just said that publicly. No, I always lock my doors with alarms and everything. Right. Well, Um, hey,
0: you know, being Johnny Law, you know, it's. I would be afraid to come through the open door. Potentially it's, I have a feeling, (laughs) I have a feeling you're pretty accurate when it comes to a handpiece. you know, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken,
1: I've been been known to, uh, yeah, shoot a handgun. Pretty, pretty, pretty decent. Um, Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's funny because we, I remember whenever we moved out here last year, um, we left the closing and we came to the house and, of course, there's other things that are on your mind. You know, I'm, I'm living in a totally different state and there's just all these changes. And I get home and we got ready to leave to go get something to eat. My wife's like, hey, um, did you lock the front door? I said, I, I don't think I have a key to the front door. So I called the, the previous owner <laughs> and I said, hey, uh, you know, I, I apologize, but I didn't, get a, I didn't get a key to the front door. And he's like, yeah, I don't have one. Like, What do you mean? He's like, dude, it's Iowa. There's only 180 people that live in the town. Like nobody even knows the house is on the top of that hill anyways. Just, um, yeah, you don't have to worry about anything, which is very odd. Like you mentioned with my background, man, I'm – You know, I'm hitting the alarm on my truck five times as I walk away in a parking lot at a you know gas station or a grocery store and everything else. So it's taking some getting used to.
0: Yeah. When I go back home, um, you know, super small town in central PA and I stop at a store somewhere and I go to walk in and I'm walking in just like to the, you know, whatever service station. I'm like, maybe I stopped and got gas or I stopped and got a bottle of water or whatever. And I'm walking Mm -hmm. in. It's one of those small ones where when you walk in, like you're still only maybe like 15 feet from your truck. You know what I mean? Because it's like, yeah. it's, you know, it's right on the parking's right on top of the glass door to walk in the front door, and I'll walk in uh-huh. and I'll literally do the same thing. I'll hit my alarm like three times, and like everyone in the whole place or everyone everyone getting gas kind of looks and like, out of towner, you know. It's clear shine sure. that uh-huh. I I'm new I'm new guy
1: there. Uh huh. Well, that's that's dude. That's hilarious. The first maybe. I'd been here maybe two or three months and I went to go look at a piece of property down the road. A farmer had invited me over and as a possible place that I might want to hunt. And I pulled up to the, to the house and and I got out and he's like, well, Hey, jump in my truck and we'll, you know, we'll ride to the back of the farm. And as I'm walking away from my Tacoma, you know, I do the whole beep beep. Right. And he's like, what'd you do? He's like, what was that? (laughs) I was like, "Uh, What was what? And he goes, you locked your doors. And I went, yeah. He goes, yeah. You're not from around here, are you? I'm like, look, I'm not saying where I grew up before was straight hood, but like, (laughs) it is what it is, you know. (laughs) Right. I don't want to be a victim.
0: Right. Exactly. It's you know, living just outside of Philadelphia. It's uh, you know, there's there's some places you park your car, you may not have hubcaps, you know, or tires for that matter. You know, you'll be thankful that your car's still
1: cinder blocks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Exactly. It's like I I rode the train for work for five years through that place, and it's uh um. Yeah. There's some, there's some, uh, what I'll call sporty areas of town, you know, that you That's right. you know, and whenever you're in the burbs, you're not too, uh, you're not usually ever too far away from those. You know what I mean? It's like people ask how close I live to the city. And I'm like, you know, for me, it's like, I live a, a world away, you know, cause it, it's nothing uh-huh. like the city where I live out in the, in the suburbs, but it's still only 16, 14 miles to downtown. And I say that to people yeah. back home and they're like, man, it's like living in the city. And I'm like. It's 16 miles, but it takes an hour and 45 minutes to drive there. I'm like, so it's like exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's,
1: it's oh uh, yeah. No, it's for me. I've got um, I've got about five oh, about five miles of gravel before I make it to asphalt, and then it's about 25 minutes of asphalt before I make it to a grocery store. Um, I'm I'm currently jealous. But still, you never know. Farmer Fred down the road, you know, he might not have not had a good crop season this year. He might want to come inside and take my couch or something. I don't know. Like I <laughs> I'm just still not used to it. Like to me, you lock the doors on your vehicle and you lock the doors on your house, you know? Oh yeah. Um I've got granted that. the bank still owns a lot of that stuff. I'm just making payments on it, you know. But still <laughs> right. it's my stuff, you know. Right, exactly. And someday I'll own it.
0: Yeah, the uh I'm the obsessive compulsive guy that I have to check like the stove, the lights, and the doorknob like ten times before I leave the house to, house to make sure I, I got it all. Um, yeah, it drives yeah. my wife nuts. Before we go anywhere, I'll get out to the car. I'll I'll literally get in the car, sit in the sit in the driver's seat, turn the car on and be like, I gotta go check the front door. I can't remember if I locked it or not.
1: <laughs> We're gonna see you on one of those television shows. You remember that like there was like a show about O C D? Oh yeah. Um and I man, I feel sorry for those people. Like that's that sounds like absolute torture you know they go to lock the door and they lock unlock lock unlock lock unlock they do it like yeah. a series of seven times and then they walk away and if it's not seven then they just can't function the rest of the day yeah that would be horrible
0: it's funny my number seven like i couldn't imagine the number seven that's it my favorite yeah. number
1: <laughs> is I'm, it? Is
0: seven the, your number seven is my number no man it's like i'm not quite that bad it's a uh, see mine is like i can't decide if it's if if I have like some kind of obsessive compulsive disorder, or if I'm, uh, or if it's just like really poor memory from all the years of rock and roll, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I haven't quite figured that out. Or so, the-
1: how much of a rocker were you? Are you sure it's memory issues or what? <laughs>
0: It's that, or You know
1: how you rock the lifestyle. Oh yeah, you know, groupies. Yeah, and it was all wild. that craziness and shenanigans.
0: It was wild. That's why. That's why I'm so slow now. I'm like, man, I'm just I'm wore out. Still wore out. It's been ten years. I'm still wore out. Um,
1: the it, rock and roll lifestyle, man, it chewed you up and spit you out. You it know, It does man? Just a washed up hunter from PA now. That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you hit the nail on the head, dude. It's either that or I remember the one time I went to the doctor for. I remember what it was for, but I went, Oh, you know what? I think it was, I was having, I, I get a, a vertigo probably like twice a year. And sometimes it, uh-huh. for different reasons, I, my ears are kind of messed up from wrestling. I have some, I was slammed once and kind of messed up some stuff on my ears. And of course, all the years of loud music doesn't help a whole lot either. And, uh yeah, the, uh, I went into the doctor and I was like, I'm having vertigo and, you know, I was trying to figure out what, what's going on. And he was like, have you ever had, you know, head trauma in your life? And I was like, uh, yeah. I was like, absolutely. He's like, well, how, how many, he's like, have you ever had a concussion? I was like, well, yeah. I'm like, kind of like, duh. It's like I had two last year, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. and he's like, well, how many times do you think you've had head trauma? And I was like, I don't know. I was like, I can count at least 10 concussions that I've had, you know, between like skateboarding, snowboarding, football, wrestling. I mean, I got two on one on a slip and slide. You know what I mean? So,
1: (laughs) So you Dang. Know, I start calling you crash Campbell.
0: Oh yeah, man. Yeah. So now when I see all these things about CTE and football, I'm like, man, and do I, do I have like some, a, a brain injury? And the doctor looked at me. He was like, man, someone with that amount of head trauma He's like, have you ever had like a head scan or something? And I said, Nope. And he basically huh. looked at me like I had three heads. And, uh, so I, I, I didn't ask any further questions. I said, thank you for my checkup, sir. I will talk to you later.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, it's funny. It's uh well, I, I, shouldn't open with saying it's funny um no it it is sad um there's a there's a lot of football players that you know they've had some nasty concussions and um it sounds you know there's been a lot of advances in the helmets and and stuff like that to um keep an eye on that kind of stuff but yeah that stuff's got some long-term effects for sure
0: yeah it sure does man i remember the one time i got hit so hard everything went to black you know it's like i'm not a big guy and coach is like we need a fullback, you know, and I'm just one of those guys where it's like, um, contact, I'm in, you know. So put me, and I'm like the smallest dude on the team. It's a dive, sure. you know, whatever the play call was to the two hole. I was the lead blocker. I met our starting linebacker head on in the hole, and uh, I woke up with him picking me up, <laughs> and
1: that was. <laughs> Then, is this heaven yeah it was <laughs>
0: that was that was it my my practice was over at that point uh you know that was the one thing that like, they did take my home at that day and they were like yeah you should go sit down now like yeah and uh so i did but uh right Speaking of, uh, you know, this is a deer hunting podcast, not to get off on a bunch of house buying domesticated, <laughs> you know, head trauma going to yeah. the doctor stories here. But, uh,
1: yeah, so We've we should, from moving trucks to groupies to concussions and yeah. I don't know how that all fits together. Well, the concussion out. is
0: how I explain all the stuff that I did. That's, that's my reason. That's 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 right. that, it's full circle. <laughs> you yeah. just, you just helped me create my, my alibi. I appreciate it. It's good stuff. That's
1: right. That's uh, right. <laughs> teamwork if there's any insurance companies listening this is not fake this is real (laughs) okay all right
0: yeah but speaking of deer work man have you done any uh any card pools since we last
1: talked uh no um actually due to do a card pool well i I take that back i did do a card pool down in missouri um and i'm gonna do a card pool this weekend here in iowa uh card pool in missouri was very interesting um I expected, and again, this, you know, to pretend that we know what we're talking about all the time with deer hunting, you still, you know, you learn something new. I hung some cameras and I had them soaking in a spot that I was pretty confident that I was going to get a lot more uh, last light pictures. Right. And I'm actually getting more morning buck pictures that I'm getting evening pictures buck pictures but i'm still <laughs> i am getting them in daylight like that 8:30 a.m central time um kind of window so it's interesting you know predominantly early season i don't like to hunt mornings uh, right. i like to hunt evenings but if i'm getting buck pictures in the mornings um i may have to move some cameras around to make sure that i can sneak in in the morning because they might you know they might be feeding really really close right. um and they might be in those bean fields where my where my tree stand is. So I'm going to have, have to move some cameras around here real fast and see if I can pinpoint where they're at and if it's something I can take a chance on sneaking in in the morning. So that was, you know, it's another piece of evidence. Uh, it's not really what I wanted, the evidence I wanted, but it's uh, I'll take it nonetheless. But, um,
3: right.
1: yeah, I'm going to pull some cards here in Iowa and see what I've got. Um, so far, the biggest buck that I've seen, I almost hit the other night on the road on my way home from the gym at like ten thirty at night or 11 o'clock at night. Mm. And, uh, I was talking to one of my buddies over and, uh, he lives over in West Virginia, my buddy, Jeremy, and, and I were on the phone and all of a sudden I stopped talking mid sentence and I go, Holy crap, Holy crap, Holy crap. And he's <laughs> like, what dude, what are you? Okay. Like what happened? What happened? I think he thought I ran off the road and I probably almost did, but, right. um, i saw a legitimate um a legitimate 170 175 buck um 10 yards in front of my truck so that was that was cool it's only a half mile from one of my hunting properties um but i haven't gotten a trail camera picture of him yet
0: hmm interesting yeah i uh well, first off, I'm glad you didn't hit him for a couple of reasons. Glad you didn't cr- yeah. crash your truck, but two, that he's still exactly <laughs> still around secondarily that he's still around. That's that's cool that he's close that close to your uh that close to your house. Maybe you'll uh maybe you'll have an opportunity at him. I hope you uh I hope he's on some of your cameras when you pull the cards.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's a man, he's a beauty. Um just a real real clean, real clean 10. Uh super super tall. I mean, I'm talking like you know 14 15 inch g2s um wow. just something something very very special very noticeable uh kind of tight uh just really really tall and and big long main beams and yeah he he would be he would definitely be what i would call l shooter El- for sure <laughs> l shooter l shooter yes yes
0: yeah i uh i did some work at my dad's at my dad's place checked a couple cameras and i had him out soaking for I don't know. It's, it was probably pretty close to a month and a half, almost two months. I think. Um,
1: oh, a long time.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I got to see him kind of, you know, every whatever was on camera develop. Um, his property, of course, is kind of new, uh, so I don't know, didn't know a whole lot about it. Um, do have one nice shooter for Pennsylvania. It's you know, it's not a hundred and seventy inch deer, but he's got a couple of nice PA eight points running around. Um, and uh-huh. fun, I was kind of anticipating I was going to get a lot of nighttime pictures. I, d- I don't know why. Um, I just kind of thought that area would be a lot of nighttime pictures because it's it 's kind of far away from any crop fields, so there 's not a lot of you know corn fields it 's a bit of a hike so I assumed that if they were betting nearby that i wouldn't get them coming back until late in the evening you know or very early in the sure. morning you know if they're betting on our property yeah. at all um but oddly enough it's like there's this one fence row that you know I assume Someone who owned it years ago, and I mentioned this on one of the previous podcasts, we talked about it, but there's page wire fence all over the place because I think they had someone had cattle in there at some point. Um, and so it's, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's old as dirt, you know, so a lot of it's fallen down on places. But as you know, it's like the deer, if they started using that fence line to travel at any point, like they'll continue to use it. Even they did studies where they re- put a fence line in, the deer traveled it, they removed the fence line, and deer continued to travel that same path even with the fence line gone now. Um, yep, yep. So, I, I just kind of thought I was like well they're, they're probably using this fence line I'll hang a camera here and sure enough I have deer coming through there every morning like clockwork between like 6.30 and 8.30 and then the mm-hmm. one nice 8 point you know for PA he's kind of a bruiser 8 um, he's showing up there during daylight hours a couple of different times so I, I think I have an idea where I think he's bedding so that will probably be my early season hunt and I'm kind of on the fence the same as you where it's like I typically don't like the hunt Morning's early season, but he's kinda of telling me that I should be. So I'll continue to monitor. I mean it's a long way. I know Missouri's season comes in a little earlier, but PA, you know, it's kinda of, I think the same as Iowa, it's a long ways off for, for opening where it's beginning of October and a lot could change between now and then. So we'll just kinda of keep watch and see what sure. happens. But
1: Yeah. Yeah, this uh this weekend when I when I do a card pull, um I'm actually gonna move a couple of uh, I'm gonna move a couple of my cameras and, um, I'm actually going to start a couple of mock scrapes this weekend. Nice. And nice. it's, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, of mock scrapes. Um, you know, people talk about, well, I'll throw a pile of corn out and that'll tell me my inventory or I'll do a mineral site and that'll tell me my, my inventory. Um, I can tell you, you know, with scrapes. You don't get a bunch of pictures of does, right. you know, on your corn sites and you don't get a bunch of pictures of does on your, on your mineral sites. So, um, you get some higher quality images nonetheless, but yeah, I, I started doing mock scrapes, um, two years ago. I started doing them a little bit earlier and, um, one advantage that I feel like I have kind of my ace up my sleeve is. Is my really good friend Sam Calora, um, you know from Mrs. Dopey and and the infamous Calora Buck uh, right. that he killed years ago. But Sam, he, he has a, a general um, statement that, and I've heard him give it to hundreds of people, if not thousands. And he'll say, you know, you could do mock scrapes during the season, during the rut, and you can be one doe out of a thousand does that are out there in heat. Right. Or you can start your mock scrapes early and you can be the first doe. Right. Hmm. And um, so, it, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And, and you know, the, I guess the, the biology side of it is that, you know, a, a deer, as soon as a deer sheds velvet, physically he is able to produce. Right. Without going vulgar, he's right. ready to rock. We'll put it that way. <laughs> he's locked and, and loaded. Um, Yes. Yes. The gun is now officially loaded. It's even cocked, right? Uh, (laughs) No pun intended, but, um, so, you know, that's the, that's the other thing. And of course the rut is nowhere near, you know, in yet. Yeah. Um, but he's ready. So that's one thing I really do like about mock scrapes and yes, most mock scrape activity or scrape activity does happen in the evenings. Um, but again, if if I know where a deer is at any point in the twenty four hour window, I mean that's that is a piece of the puzzle. Right. So yeah, I'll t- I'll take sightings whenever I can get them, no matter what time it is. Um, if if there's a trail camera, that'll tell me a, a direction that he came from or a direction he was moving to. Again, that's all, they're all pieces of the puzzle. You know.
0: Right. Yeah. Unfortunately for me, it's like I've I've used I, I've done mock scrapes in the, in the, in the past, um, with what I'll call variable success. So some, some have worked, some, some haven't. And then just a few years ago, I started using some preorbital for, for licking branches, preorbital gland. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. and that seemed to do pretty well, but early. And then for whatever reason, it's just, I would, I would start to like bucks would just start, would stop showing up to those. Like they would hit it like once or twice, as soon as it was something different in the woods. And then after that, Like they were pretty much, it was as though it didn't exist. Um, and so I kind of backed off And unfortunately for me now, it's like the area in PA that all the properties I hunt are, um, are all in a, in a CWD management zone. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, restricted, you know, no mineral sites, no, um, you know, no using any type of, of, uh, lures or anything like that. So for me Mm -hmm. this year, it's a, it's a, it's a non, non option, but I know that, you know, with Steve coming up here, I know that he's done some stuff with scrapes and, even going as far as making um, uh, scrape trees, you know, out in food plots to kind of get you an opportunity at a, you know, get you an optimum shot opportunity if there's a buck that's frequenting a food plot or you know one that's in the area and get him to try to you know come out and kind of tip the odds in in the shooter's favor. And if there's not a what I'll call it a tree in the area to produce like a good looking branch with a, with a good shot opportunity. He just kind of makes one, um, which is kind of an interesting approach. Yep. I've never done that. I'd like to try it sometime if we ever get out of the CWD zone where I can do some of that stuff. It's like, I'd love to give it a try. Um, but with sure. that, man, I think maybe we should just go ahead and get the, uh, get the expert dialed in and see what, uh, see what Steve has to say about uh, all things whitetail and get some tips from him.
1: Yeah. Sounds like a plan, dude.
0: All right, let's do it. Before we dial Steven, let's take a quick second to pause to talk about our partners at Exodus Outdoor Gear. You've all probably heard me talk about the Exodus 5-year No BS Warranty, which is absolutely industry-leading, and since the launch of their new lift 2 camera, I've actually had a chance to put the new camera into the timber and see how it performs. Trigger speed is awesome, sensitivity is great, I'm not getting the tail end of a deer or a bunch of false triggers. The thing I think I'm most impressed with, though, is with the video. We're talking top-notch video camera quality videos here, and I've always shied away from using video on other cameras due to battery consumption, but I've had these cameras in the timber on video mode for about two months and still better than 80% battery life remaining. What's better than an Exodus camera? Nothing, except saving money when you purchase an Exodus camera. How do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Use the promo code TRUTH at checkout at exodusoutdoorgear.com and save 20 bucks on a camera today. And now let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand deer hunting podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and today... My guest needs probably very little introduction to most of you as he is well known and, uh, and, and very renowned throughout the whitetail circles in the uh, in the United States. I am joined by the one and only Steve Bartilla who is of course of uh, of deer and deer hunting has wrote, wrote uh, or has written a litany of books and you know if there's a deer hunting magazine out there at some point in his career he has likely touched it and has influenced it in one in, in some way shape or form. So without further ado, how are you doing this morning Steve?
4: I virtually rendered speechless. I should have uh I should have hired you back when I did seminars to have you introduce me because whoa. <laughs> I've, I've never gotten an introduction quite like that before. I'm doing great. I'm Good. Doing great. How about Good. yourself?
0: Oh, I'm not doing too bad. You know, had my morning cu- morning cup of coffee and uh just kind of getting things rolling the body these days uh, as I get older doesn't limber up as as quickly as it used to. So uh,
4: Oh, buddy. I just got done i just got done three days four days out in the woods and just digging digging eight two and a half foot holes (laughs) to plant scrape trees in yeah you don't you don't have to tell me right now about getting old
0: right i I hear you You i I had some deer work this weekend funny story about digging holes is my dad as part of punishment when i was a kid growing up used to make me dig holes because he was going to plant trees and then after I get them all dug in the evening and finished up, he would come back and say, "Yeah, I decided not to plant any trees. Go ahead and fill those back in." So, <laughs> <laughs> so that that was that uh, would be
4: a lot funnier from his end than it would be from yours. I'm sure. Yeah, I can
0: appreciate the humor now, but uh, those those days, I was uh, I wasn't I didn't find the humor whenever I was 15, 16 years old. Shall we say? But uh, as I had mentioned you, you've done and you've done a lot in the whitetail world and have had a very long uh, career that I think you know most people would be envious of is in terms of what you've been able to do um, and how you've been able to kind of influence the way people approach hunting and the, the books you've been able to write um, but for those who might not be as familiar if you wouldn't mind just give us a little bit of background about yourself you know how you started in hunting and what you do specifically in the whitetail world
4: that's About a three-hour conversation, (laughs) Um, and I never know how to explain it. Uh, I got started doing this out of out of ignorance and stubbornness. I I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to be able to, Um, (laughs) how difficult it was to break in, and by the well, I actually started making videos. I made a couple how-to videos. Uh, It really frustrated me that the only videos out there that Really, that consistently taught me anything were um Barry Wenzel's videos like hunting October Whitetails, tips and tricks, hunting October Whitetails two, and all that type of stuff. Um, and it was just when it was just when people were starting to put together the shoot 'em up videos. Now, oh. Only back then, a shoot 'em up video contained two, three deer getting right. shot. Right. Um, so I did that, and I started actually trying to write just to not sell the videos but build a little bit of name recognition because who the heck's going to buy a video from somebody they've never heard of before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went for the big boys and just kept getting rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter. Um, I mean, man, I, from deer and deer hunting alone. I know I got the exact same form rejection letter at least 10 times. (laughs) Um, And then uh, the same month, Bob Torres was the editor of Bow and Arrow Hunting Magazine, an ex-Marine who knew nothing about bow hunting, which I'm quite certain that's why he decided he'd take one of my articles. Um, And Gordon Whittington from North American Whitetail, I must have been just a sympathy deal there I have no idea but they both of them ended up buying articles the same month which one was the first I can't even remember anymore but (laughs) just kind of went from there and and at the same time I am giving seminars at deer shows and the whole reason I'm giving seminars is again you know just a little bit of name recognition so maybe somebody will buy some of my videos um and I split the seminars fifty fifty between hunting and habitat improvement. And on the habitat improvement by back then, wow, you gave you gave a seminar on habitat improvement. You draw at least I did three to one over mm-hmm. hunting. Because habitat improvement. I mean this was geez, we're talking twenty five years ago now. Um <clears throat> The idea of food plots and improving the habitat for deer was just a bizarre concept. Right. Uh, and as I was, after I'd get done with them, I'd, you know, there'd always be four or five people hanging around with more questions and half of them would be outfitters and ask, ask me if I'd be willing to help them on their property. So I started consulting on the habitat improvement and hunting end of things. And everything just kind of grew from there.
0: Wow, it's uh, it's kind of funny how how people take a path to get to where they ultimately and end up. It usually ends up being the the you couldn't have planned it if you tried, I guess, type of thing. You know oh, what I mean? Exact You just kind yeah, of go at things with the best possible. You lay the foundation that you that you know you can lay and do what you can do, and hopefully people enjoy it or like it or you're helping them and they see value in it. And then from there, um, it's about building the relationships. Probably at that point.
4: Oh. It's without a doubt. uh, Excuse me. The whole reason that I finally started writing for Deer and Deer Hunting is I ran into back then the editor was Pat Pat Durkin. Excuse me for just one second. Mm -hmm. Um, The editor was Pat Durkin, and I was giving I was giving show uh, seminars at the Madison Deer and Turkey Expo which, you know, if any of your listeners are in that area and haven't went, I I don't speak there anymore. I retired from speaking about five years ago now. Um, But I'll tell you what, for the Midwest, it's a heck of a show. I mean, I think it's the best. Personally, I think it's the best in the entire Midwest. Um, But anyway, I was giving seminars there, ran into Pat, and he he asked, well, why haven't you ever tried writing for me? Like, Pat, I've geez, I don't even know how many rejection letters I've got from you. <laughs> and he made up a bit of a BS story about how that's not him, that's his associate editor. Write personal on the on the letter. This shows how long ago this was. You actually had to you <laughs> know, sit down and type out all these uh all these article ideas and slap it in an envelope and mail it to Deer right. and Deer Hunt. And write personal on it, and that way it'll actually get to me, not my associate editor, which, as I said, was complete blowing right. um, But I've been writing for him ever since. Sim- life, life in general is a good old boy's network. Yeah. Now, whether for good, bad, ugly, that's reality. The hunting world is a good old boys network on steroids. Right, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying that you don't have to have any skill at all. Right, you you nailed it when you said it, it's about knowing the right people. You you know the right people and they like you. Opportunities avail themselves to you. you
0: know? Yeah, it's you know, doesn't
4: matter how good you are. You don't know the right people. You aren't getting anywhere.
0: Right. And then you have to make sure to maintain those those relationships. And I've always had the motto. It's that, you know, prior to, you know, the what I do now for a living, which is, you know, marketing, advertising, things of that nature. I was a musician and I always had the saying that um, the same people that you if you choose to kick on your way up as you climb the ladder, you're going to see on your way back down because it's inevitable. At some point you're going to slide, you know, and so you just hope that you've treated people right on your way up to where there's, a, there's some type of safety net in place if and when you do hit a, a rough patch, you know? Um,
4: I, I wasn't ever smart enough to look at it that way, but I couldn't possibly agree more. <laughs> <laughs> this, the, the, this industry is exceptionally small. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm... I was helping River's Edge Tree Stands years ago, you know, um, and their marketing guy... You know, 10 years later, is in charge, is the marketing guy for Faradine, mm-hmm. which is a company that owns every dang archery product in the world now, it seems. Blah, right. um, wow, great, just on and on and on. Um, I, I'm glad I was real nice to him back, back when I was specifically helping them. You right. know, I mean, this, you know, it, it's, yeah, you life's hard enough. With friends, <laughs> <laughs> you go around making a bunch of enemies, especially in this industry. And ooh, it's not going to be good.
0: Right? Exactly. And we've we've had some some recent mishaps here, and we can touch on those if, if we would like here in the in the in in the past week or so. Folks doing things that not the right way, which were are oh, going to yeah. you know hurt them tremendously going forward. I have a feeling, but I do want oh,
4: to share. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said they're gone.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, that's something you don't come back from, but. I do want to shift gears here and and talk a little bit about you know what you had mentioned with the habitat consulting component of of, of the area of your expertise, um, you know, and why I wanted to kind of dive into kind of some things that you do, I guess, that that you do specifically when you're looking at managing properties. And I wanted to, the first part is I wanted to ask you, you know, given the the time of year that we're in, you know, or you know, I, let me ask it this way: at this point in terms of habitat management and, and updates you know, or enhancements. You know, what types of things are, are you doing at this portion of the season?
4: Well, as uh, as we were discussing right before we hit record here, I just got back from a, from a four-day trip to a client's property. Out there, what I was doing is, A, inspecting everything. Mm-hmm. You know, go ahead, look at everything, figured. Uh, <clears throat> Any time from the time season's done till about now, now, you'd really like to go out and inspect your property a couple times now once right after season once uh, once when things start greening up in the spring and once midsummer know all these improvements you make so you go in and you do some hinge cutting to create a create a dough bedding area that's good and great but it's not like there's nothing to do there ever again for the next 20 years know um, <clears throat> you have to do some, At times, you know, some of the trees don't live and they fall and that can go ahead and mess everything. Oh, uh, for your listeners that may not be familiar with hinge cutting, hinge cutting is doing nothing but cutting from the backside of the lean, you know, through the tree until the tree tips over retaining that connection with the root system the cut there the remaining tissue ends up creating a hinge hence the term hinge cutting <clears throat> well that's, that's a great trick on certain species to really jack up the browse levels because those species a good percent of them will continue to live okay so now you have that canopy down on the forest floor and all that extra browse and cover it's it's a really 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 quick way of transforming a small area in the woods you don't want to go through your entire woods hinge cutting that'd be ridiculous but (laughs) pocket it's a great little tool um so but but yet as i said those things require maintenance over time they eventually they they can go to go to heck on you um so I was inspecting those, inspecting the food plots, looking at the various uh, various I don't know for lack of a better term buck traps I set up with some habitat improvements, making sure that making sure that it's working as intended and uh, and killing my shoulders by planting eight scrape trees <laughs> and of course and when I'm planting what I mean by planting scrape trees is I'll go ahead and cut a tree that when buried two and a half to three feet in the ground, will have a licking branch right at nose level. So, I mean, this is not a live tree, obviously. It's, well, it was until I cut it, but (laughs) it's just a way of, so... So you've got your tree stand, you're sitting, on a, you're sitting on a fresh clear cut, you're sitting on a big meadow, you're sitting on a soybean field, an alfalfa field, a pickhorn field, in um, any large food source that's too large to cover with your weapon. Um, you go ahead and put it, that scrape tree 20 yards out in front of your stand right in the middle of that food source, it sticks out like a sore thumb. <laughs> it ends up a and Scrapes are nothing more than the White Hills equivalent to human billboards. They're meant to advertise. Well, geez, where do you see billboards? Places where they're going to stand out. You put that scrape tree on that food plot, and is every buck going to come over and check it out? No. But an extra, oh, 10, 20% are going to be staying in 20 yards in front of your stand. Well, if you point those licking branches back towards the stand, <clears throat> in order to work that scrape they have to give you a good shot angle and they're taking their attention and placing it directly away from you giving you all day up in the stand to, to come to folder on and make the shot so i buried uh buried eight of those did a bunch of inspection and put out cameras that's what this time of year is about figuring out what you're gonna what you're gonna do for fall food plots where and Make it. I know a lot of people this time of year get out there and, and do a bunch of scouting. There really isn't a worse time of the year to scout. Right. It, it is fun, and I do it myself a lot. I've done it a ton. It is fun to sit there and observe deer this time of year, but with what's going on, there's going to be a big time shuffle here as soon as those bachelor groups start breaking up here in a couple months. Well, actually, it's, yeah, about a month from now.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned those those scrape trees, and I'm I'm curious. You know how, what kind of success? Because I've never used one, and I've contemplated putting one in. You know what what type of success rate do you have with those? Just because my, my novice understanding is that a lot of the scrapes that are checked or made are usually done under the cover of dark, um, oh, sure. and so I've just never. I was always just curious of what the success rate is during you know using those, and you know, what you could expect.
4: Well, it, it really. To, to answer the question, I get it. But really, to answer the question, the first thing you have to uh, you have to define is well, what do you mean by success? Yeah, no, um, success to me—the the clearest cut example of success to me is the very first time I ever did one, and I'm sitting there, uh, <clears throat> I'm sitting there hunting this this field that's got a little island of trees out in it, and I'm thinking to myself, every buck it, well, it's not even trees; they're bucks brush but every buck that comes out is headed straight for that island to work scrapes and it's like man there's no way to set up on it because it's so small i mean it was like by island i mean just a little pocket about twice the size of a kitchen table um and uh so it's like man if if i could just move that well maybe maybe a person could go ahead and plant trees Specifically, do Oh, man. But you sit there and you plant a tree, and for it to get big, I mean, you're talking years. Right. So I thought of a study John Azoga did. John J. Azoga was a research um, research biologist for the Michigan Department of Natural Resources. He ran a one-mile, one-square-mile enclosure in the UP of Michigan where they did all sorts of tests. And he did tests on trying to get deer to, well, work scrapes and rubs. The scrapes, he was just bending down branches. <clears throat> for the rubs, he was cutting aspen poles and burying them in the ground. Oh, so, well, why can't I do that with a scrape tree? Why, why, why can't I cut a tree and plant it in the ground just like John's doing for rubbing, only I'm going to do it for scraping? So the next day, when I headed back there, headed back extra early, found a tree I thought would work. You know, cut it off. Went out twenty yards in front of my stand, between the islands, between the island and my stand, and uh, went ahead and buried the tree. Pointed the licking branch back to me, and every deer that came out, the first thing they did is come over there to check. It was curiosity, right? You know? Um Then the then the young bucks started working it. And then the buck that I was hunting up there that I'd saw four sits in a row that eluded me every time he came up and he made a beeline straight for it and I shot him. So <laughs> you know, that is, if that's your definition of success, oh, geez, not that much at all. Right. Um, <clears throat> your percent is going to be exceptionally low. What I'm looking for, is, as I said, I'm looking for just, To suck that deer over to this location Now It has I'm actually hunting a specific Age class of deer It varies depending on where I am Um, So On The age classes I'm talking about An honest Fair representation is During hunting season If he steps out into this opening Oh Oh Ten to fifteen percent of the time, maybe even up to as high as twenty, he's going to come over there and check that scrape.
0: Right. Yeah. It,
4: you know, it, it's it's, in, every, if you don't mind, I don't mean to, you know, interrupt you there, but there's one more thing that I do think is pretty key to understanding everything I do. My entire approach is nothing I do is going to change the world. No no one act is going to change the deer world. No one act is going to change the deer habitat. No one act is going to change my deer hunting success. It's all about addressing as many little things as I can. Stacking as many odds in my favor. So that scrape tree, that doesn't, well, tend to... 10 to 20% is a pretty significant jump.
0: Yeah, of course. Now,
4: it's a shot opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but now let's go ahead and edge feather that. If you own the property, let's edge feather around that, that large food source. And edge feathering is just going ahead and hinge cutting a band of about five yards wide, uh, the trees and brush around that food. And you don't have to do everything. I mean, obviously, don't be doing this to your big oaks or or certainly not your walnuts and stuff like that, but low timber valley trees. Right. Doing that, it goes ahead and creates a screen between that food source and the woods. So now, if that buck wants to see if there is a doe or a uh, uh, buck he's in competition with out in that food source, he's got to go into the food source. He can't actually stand 10 yards back in the woods and say, oh, there's nothing out there I can keep going, um, which what percent does that knock it up maybe five percent mm-hmm. that help and then well you know those edges regrow so lush and that's a big part the other reason another big part of the reason you do something like that is now you've opened up that little five yard band forest floor to a little bit more a little bit more sunlight you have knocked out that bands canopy so you get a bunch more growth and as I said you do that hinge cutting all those tops are now down at the bottom it creates a it creates a smorgasbord salad bar in the snap of a finger which thickens up so you can go ahead and cut trails through this that the deer I mean are, can the deer slip through other places of course they can but this is easy so let's do this in a safe wind direction from our stand within shooting range does that change the world no but it goes ahead and ups it now another couple more percent and then you know what you really want to juice up this food source a little bit more let's go ahead and get a 20 gallon water trough and bury it all within shooting distance of the stand in a, in a spot that a, a safe wind area as well so now again is every deer that's going to come over there want to come over here and uh and have a drink of water no well let's say five percent do start adding all that up and now we do have a big deal right and that that's my entire whether it's habitat improvement or hunting
0: It's funny because a
4: foundation is just simply stacking, addressing the little details I can to stack the odds in my favor or in my client's favor.
0: Right? Yeah, it's uh, it's funny because right before you mentioned that, I wrote down uh, tipping the odds because all the the videos and the writings that I've 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 either watched or read of yours. That was kind of a constant theme was that just kind of stacking the odds every every ever so slightly with each individual little enhancement or update. So, you would kind of take that approach for every stand location, if I'm not mistaken, right?
4: Oh, without a doubt. One of the we are as hunters generally we are great. We are fantastic when it comes to tearing apart the woods and finding that one spot. That one spot that we believe that Mister Big could possibly walk by during legal shooting hours where we drop the ball or, or we tend to drop the ball as we put up the stand, we walk away, we're done. Like, well, wait a minute. There's almost always a few little things you can do, even on public ground. I on a lot of public ground. Even on public ground, there's almost always a few little things you can do to up the odds even further. You don't have a good tree. And that tree, it's a Telephone pole, you stick out like a turd in a punch bowl. So <laughs> go ahead and, if it's private ground, cut some oak branches. You know, weave it into the outer edge of the platform of the stand. Um, go ahead and attach, stick it in by the straps or the chain. You know, on the back, maybe wire some branches up to the street. Bingo, I got cover. Nice. I went from being exposed to the point where I can't move when deer are coming through to now... Man, I can darn near do gymnastics up there. (laughs) There's a trail that you can't, I mean, you really need to be covering this trail. You really, really need, this is the one, and this is the spot I have to be, but you're bow hunting, and 40 yards up there, a trail breaks off. You know, I can't shoot it. Well, go ahead and, like on public, this is what I was saying about the public ground. On public ground, I'll go ahead and gather as much as many fallen fallen branches as I can, and clog the darn thing. Does that mean that deer can't walk around it? No, it doesn't. Of course they can, but they tend to have one track minds, and if they look at, the, "Oh, I can't get through," they tend to they tend to keep going straight instead. Um, <clears throat> when you find that stand, I always ask yourself, "What can I do to make it better?" And be creative. Uh, one of the things that I'm going to say right now that I'm fond of saying is, our greatest weapon is not my Matthews that I can go ahead and group group arrows at 100 yards in the size of a block target. You know, um, <clears throat> it's not that primitive weapons muzzle loader that can shoot a group the size of a baseball at 250 yards. It's not our rifles. Our greatest weapons are mind. Mm-hmm. We use that; it's our advantage over these, over white tails. We use that to our fullest. We get creative, and we can come up with all sorts of goofy things to do out there.
2: Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over one hundred thousand boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit boattrader dot com to get started. All
0: right, it's. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about hinge cutting there for a moment and I wanted to get a sense from you, you know, because when people, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, but I think a lot of times when folks hinge cut they start to create thick areas on their property, they automatically think that that's going to turn into, you know, buck bedding. Bucks like cover, they like thick, nasty, you know, spaces, especially after their velvet comes off and so forth. But you know, when, when you're doing any type of cutting, are you focusing on creating buck bedding or are bucks typically going to bed where they like to regardless of whether you're making a specific area for, for a buck bed? They're just going to kind of define it themselves and it's kind of your job to kind of go out and find where they historically want to be and maybe enhance the place that they're really kind of, uh, you know, finding desirable
4: already. Well, I am exceptionally good at creating buck bedding. I mean, I, I don't think there's a single person in this world i mean I, I hate to come off as an arrogant jerk here but i i don't think there's anybody better than the, than i am at creating buck beds and locations bucks are already betting think about that for a second he, he's already bedding there right now i i can go into there and i can go ahead and create a little igloo and get him to crawl underneath it oh heck yes and is there ever a purpose for something like that? I, I, yeah. Yeah, there are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll go ahead and have, historically, I've done, I don't know, about 25, 30 plans a year for, for just photo evaluation plans for right. one-time clients. And each year, I'll have them create You know, I'll on 25, 30 plans, I'll have, oh, geez, at least three, four buck beds for them to make. Right. You know, I'm not talking about each client. I'm talking about out of those 20 or 30 clients, you know, two to four. Um, I I hate to be this incredibly blunt, but in my humble opinion, buck beds, that's a marketing hype. You know, you do this and that, and you can get bucks to bed wherever, no, you can't. I can't. Let's put it that way. (laughs) if, If... Buck bedding is so, especially when you're talking mature bucks, is so based on topography, the amount of pressure, the habitat type. Now, one of the biggest keys, and I just actually um, just mentioned this the other day to somebody else. One of the biggest keys to taking your game to another level is when you find the sign. Don't be content with finding it. Ask why. Why did that buck do this here? What's the odds of him doing it again? Where was he coming from? Where was he going? Is he doing this in... Do I think there's a chance he's doing this in daylight? Or is this exclusively nocturnal? The more answers we can get when we find sign, the better we can use our most powerful weapon, our brain. And... You find that buck bed. You squat that. Now this is during this time of year, or right after, right after season closes. You don't want to do this stuff uh, during season. But you're out scouting. You find that buck bed on that on what's called the military crest of the point. You know, right where that point really starts to drop. Um, <clears throat> squat down in it. Look around ask yourself if I'm Mr. Big and I've got all these acres to lay down why am I laying down here the more you do that the more not only does it make sense to figure out the property you're hunting but now you see now you're on new ground We well, just look for those same situations all over again mm. um, <clears throat> the hinge cutting I do frankly is first and foremost, food production. Now, I, I really don't, I, I hope I don't offend anybody with what I'm going to say here, but a lot of hunters in the Midwest have no clue what a healthy woods looks like for deer browse. Right. It's because so many of these, so many of these woodlots have been pastured over the years. And you have such, and I'm talking the Iowa, Missouri, Illinois belt, where the standing logging isn't a big deal like it is in wisconsin you know my home state um and we don't have anywhere near the woods that have been cow pastured so our woods we we've got i mean just naturally we tend to have a ridiculous level of browse Hmm. you get down to that latitude belt we were just talking about though a state lower and now you're walking through the woods and what are these deer eating over winter? Mm-hmm. I, the only the thing that frankly allows them to, uh, to maintain such a high deer number density is agriculture and them not really having winters. Now, right. I mean, these deer, a deer in Iowa oftentimes in mid-February is out picking soybeans off the ground. They don't even have to paw through snow to do that you know same time we're in michigan minnesota wisconsin new york deer i mean man they're trudging through three feet of snow to eat the end of a stick (laughs) but so the biggest thing that i'm really trying to accomplish with hinge cutting no matter what i'm using hinge cutting for is to jack up those browse levels even in even in egg rich ground browse is a very important food stuff now, um, especially when you have years like 2012 where it was just such a horrific drought through all the Midwest now if they don't have crop seed, and you're looking at 150 deer per per square mile of habitat which is pockets of it sure was I know one of the properties I managed was um, <clears throat> man you have crop failure and God help those deer because they're going to be they're going to die the most hideous way. Some of them are going right. to die the most hideous way they possibly can. Right. Now, if you've ever been in a if you've ever been in a traditional yarding area on a bad winter up north, it's just oh, it's sick and brutal.
0: Yeah, it's so. Would you would you prioritize then in terms of uh, in terms of food plots? It, do you prioritize food plots when you're looking at a property or are you prioritizing looking at places that you can get natural browse and food down to the deer's level? Before we hear how Steve likes to address food on properties, let's take a quick second to hear from our partners at Whitetail Institute of North America with this week's Whitetail Institute food plot tip of the week. And this week, John shares tips for using both of Whitetail Institute's herbicide products, slay and arrest max for broadleaf and weed control.
2: We also have a broadleaf weed herbicide, it's called Slay, and it controls most kinds of broadleaf weeds. Uh, one of the neat things about Arrest Max is that uh, it's the newest generation of grass herbicides. Has a number of benefits. One is that unlike our uh, earlier grass herbicide, which was just Arrest without Max on the end, uh, you couldn't mix it with uh, Tank mix it with Slay. You'd have to spray the Arrest. Or, spray the sleigh, and then wait at least three days and spray the other one. a rest max though can be tank mixed with sleigh if, if, if it's appropriate uh, to spray both on on the on the plot. You can do it in one shot, and uh, also with the sleigh broadleaf herbicide, uh, it requires an adjuvant and an adjuvant is basically just something you put in the the spray tank with the herbicide to activate it and or make it stick to the leaves and or help it penetrate uh with slay you have to add an adjuvant when you tank mix we have one called uh, surefire crop oil plus that's it's very very good uh it's vegetable based it's not petroleum based um and it's very inexpensive uh, and you let's say you're mixing the, the slay spray tank and you're putting the rest max in there too <laughs> then uh, when you add the uh, the Surefire, uh, it will do double duty. It will satisfy the requirement that slay have it in the tank, and it will also help uh, the Arrest Max to get an even hotter burn on, uh, on, uh, some, on grasses. Now, there's some other things out there. There's some other uh, very similar herbicides out there, and I see people uh, say sometimes, oh, you don't have to add oil with this grass herbicide. Well, I've looked at some of those, and they're a lot like ours, and it says it has some oil in it. And ours does, too. Uh, so do you have to add uh, uh, an oil or an adjuvant with the max? No. But we try to give very accurate information. And I'm telling you, if you, uh, if you look at how cheap the oil is, especially if you're dealing with a mature grass or a hard-to-control grass, add, the oil, add some more oil in there with it. Add the Surefire in there with it. It will increase the burn even more.
0: And that, folks, is a Whitetail Institute food plot tip of the week. I've been using the Whitetail herbicide products for a few years now, and my perennial clover plot is in its third year and looks as good as it ever has. If you'd like to learn more about any of the Whitetail Institute products, head over to whitetailinstitute.com, check out their product selector tool, and it'll help you determine which forage or herbicide product will work best for your food plot needs. Now let's get back to the show. Both. Both.
4: Both, yeah. Um, when, I, I should... Back up a little bit and really answer your question. I have a bad tendency of getting off on radical tangents um, and never answering the question.
0: Hey, hey, tangents are okay here; they're allowed. <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, but uh, uh first priority for the hinge cutting is to create browse My second priority, honestly, is to create visual blocks. You look at those. You look at those woods that we're we were just talking about in the Midwest. You know. There, man, you don't even have to clear lanes to go sit in the middle of the woods with a shotgun or a, or a rifle in your hand because you naturally you can naturally shoot 100, 200 yards in all sorts of directions. Mm-hmm. That's not good. It's not good because now Mr. Big, if this is your ground and you're trying to manage it, now Mr. Big is coming through checking for does. If you can see 100, 200 yards in every direction, so can he. Right. Okay. So, he doesn't have to bird dog that property anywhere near as hard as if, oh, he can only see 30 yards in that direction. He can only see 50 yards in this direction. If he wants to know if there are those there, he's got to go check it out. Um, and then lastly, I, I do have pretty darn, I, I'd say over 50% success getting does to bed in hinge cut doe bedding areas. As I said, I can bet a hundred or a thousand if... I go ahead and make buck beds where bucks are already bedding. Um, if I try to make them where they're not already bedding, no, I, I drop down to maybe 02 percent. Right. Um, but it's really, it's really the browse production. When it comes to these sidewalks, a, a sidewalk is nothing more than um, going ahead and having about a oh thirty-two inch wide, thirty-two inch wide path true hinge cut um where you hinge cut the trees perpendicular to the trail so the deer can get on and off easy enough um for anywhere from 10 to 30 feet in either direction of the center it depends on the maturity of the woods i i don't care if you're followed or not to be brutally honest with you mm-hmm. I'm, it's really really what i'm trying to do is create a living hedge through the woods and make it so that a privacy fence and, and a salad bar, and you want to get deer to follow the sidewalk. It's really easy. Make the sidewalk on a deer trail,
0: right? <laughs> put it where, put it where they already are. It's uh, Occam's razor, right? The, 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 simplest answer is typically the, the most correct answer in,
4: in many is, cases. You're a hundred percent right, Clint. And I'll tell you when it comes to, I mean, I, I really, really, enjoy, I get a thrill. Out of trying to trying to tweak deer behavior, try to get them to react to me rather than me reacting to them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, hopefully in a positive way. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I've had plenty
0: um, of the negative.
4: <laughs> yeah, we all have. Believe me. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but it's always easier to get deer to do what they're already doing more than it ever is to stop them from doing something that they're doing. (laughs) You know, you have to work so darn hard to step. Those are the two extremes. It's easier to get them to do what they're already doing more, heck of a lot easier than it is to get them to stop doing something they're doing or get them to do something that they haven't, that they don't traditionally do there. You know, the traditionally do part is the middle ground. Is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. It's much more possible than stopping deer from doing something they're already doing. <laughs> right. okay. um, but by far, your best success, whenever given the option, what I do is I take I take natural deer movements that are working for my goals. You know, be it be it hunting or management, and I try to put that on steroids. The deer activity that is working against my goals, I try to discourage. Right. um such as that trail that jumps the fence you know over to the neighbors where he's uh where you got mr big bedding on your ground and he sets up 10 yards off your line and ends up killing him every year um not that there's a darn thing that's 100 percent legal for him to do 100 percent legal and i have absolutely no right to be upset that he's doing that right just like he has no right to be upset that, Oh, 10 yards on my side of the property line, I just made a blockade.
0: Right. <laughs> it's <laughs> funny. You mentioned that fence line. Cause I actually just put in, uh, my dad picked up a 50 ish acres uh, this past winter and there's a fence row or a, an old page wire fence. that kind of goes along the one field edge that separates a small field of ours versus the neighboring farms, larger field. And there's an area where they're clearly coming across. So, what I did was I snaked, I went in and did all my killing and, and did my weed eating, did it all, but the, the poor man's version with no equipment sure. and yep. uh, went in and sprayed. And, and what I did was I snaked a small, what I'll call a kill plot along the timber line there for two reasons. One, I want to pull them close to the timber line so I can possibly get a shot of any of the nice you know bucks that are on the property. Two, I wanted to slow them down from getting across the neighbor's fence line until it was after dark. So give them a reason to pause. You know, on, on
4: oh, our property, you are you are hitting on a. If you're trying to, if you're trying, nobody manages free range deer, right? Okay, but if you're trying to manage free range deer um, <clears throat> on your property, and I, I'm lucky, I every year I man, I do. I've retired from doing the the photo evaluations. I actually trained a couple guys to do them now. Mm -hmm. Um, One's my younger brother, and the other's a long-time assistant. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I I still do long-term on-site management consultations. I don't know what exactly the right term is for it. I manage clients' properties for four, five, six years until right. I get it to the point where, okay, it's, we're good. The population dynamics are where they're supposed to be. Um, <clears throat> the habitat's where it's supposed to be right now. This is, frankly, it's an assembly line. You just keep doing what I'm doing and you're good. Right. Um, then I'll move on to another property. I, I've been so unbelievable. And I'm going to pause here just for a second just and talk to your audience. Thank you. What I'm about to tell you, my God, for some stupid kid from northern Wisconsin to be able to do this, my God, thank you. (laughs) Because I don't do this without your audience. Um, No way. Uh, I've managed as big as uh, a 4,000-acre property. I'd never... I could never buy four, thousand. Heck I couldn't buy four hundred acres of ground <laughs> right. manage. Um, but over the years, I've been able to manage five six properties that range that are over a thousand acres mm-hmm. in uh, in northern and midwestern states. Um, <clears throat> even on those properties, deer are gonna leave and let, the only way to stop deer from leaving your property is to erect a high fence. You know, I don't care what any of these people are saying. That That is that is the only way you're going to get them to stop leaving your property even if you own 4,000 acres. Now, are those ones that are living in the center of that 4,000 going to leave? Probably not much. The does aren't. You know, the right. does. Uh, um, but, Mr. Big, he, he probably still is going to leave. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll just be a little excursion. Okay, But, you know, and that's where what you just said comes into play. So key. I want to waste. Is I, my goal when I'm trying to manage here. Now, now you can't do this on every property. Okay, uh, you need to you need to match your property for to its strengths. And you know what? If there happens, if your neighbor happens to have a ten acre cedar swamp and a gorgeous oak ridge with beautiful viewing bedding. And all you got is uh, flat forty acres of timber. You guess what? You're not getting those bucks out of that cedar ridge and off that your mature bucks off that cedar ridge and out of that swamp to bet on your flat forty. Okay. Right. But so in that case, you don't want to try to go for that. You do need to try to match your strength of your property to what your to your goals, frankly. Um but <clears throat> When you do have the ideal, is have those bucks set up their daylight core area on your ground, their bedding areas. Okay. Now, are they going to jump that fence? Eventually, of course they are. But let's get them to waste every flipping second we can on this property before they do. Because I don't care what they're doing after dark. Right. What they're after dark doing after dark is absolutely no concern of mine whatsoever, as long as they stay off the roads when there's headlights coming. Um. <clears throat> And as long as they come back before first light, so that little staging plot you've got there. We all know that bow hunting mature bucks is a game of minutes, often seconds. Yeah. You know, you're really hunting in most, unless you're dealing with pristinely managed ground where the deer on there are just plain pants on heads, stupid compared to real deer. Mm-hmm. Which thankfully I get to experience every year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but unless you're dealing with with that 4,000 acres, you know, unless you're dealing with that 2,500 acres, unless you're dealing with that 100 acres that is pristinely managed, you know, um, all you're really hunting for is that last five minutes of shooting light. Mm-hmm. Last 10 minutes on a really good day. You know, will they every once in a while throw you a curveball and show up early? Yeah, and please keep throwing me curveballs. Right. But, but realistically, we're really hunting. If you're trying to kill mature bucks, and there's and I'm not trying to convince anybody what they should hunt. That's everybody's own choice, and none of us none of us have a right to judge that person for their choice as long as they're hunting legal deer in you know, a legal manner. Um, but those five minutes make a big difference every single scrape we can get him to stop to work. That's anywhere from 30 to thirty to 120 seconds. So if we can get him to, so on that food plot of yours there now, why don't you go ahead and put out a scrape tree and make sure that there are licking branches up the wazoo along the edge of that little snake that you got going along that fence line. Because mm-hmm. if you can get him, if you can just plain get him to work two, three scrapes, He's probably not jumping that fence till after dark. Right, and then he happens to catch that neighboring hunter climbing down out of his tree stand. Right, he doesn't like that. No, (laughs) he doesn't care for that at all. And that's if you don't mind me jumping off into a big time tangent here. Please, we we are really, really good at complaining about our neighbors. You know, I man. We would be able to really do something on this ground if only if it wasn't for the neighbors. They kill every darn thing that moves. They don't know what the heck they're doing. They're running around their woods at all time of day. They'll go out scouting the day before firearm season opens, if you can believe that. <laughs> now, not afraid to put up a stand on the third day. Now, like, oh man, don't even get me started on that. Those neighbors can be your best friends. Mm-hmm. And you, you, what it's just like hunting my entire approach to hunting public ground, my entire approach to hunting or any heavily pressured whitetail find the pockets where we don't go. And they almost, almost always exist, you know, and it's either because it's overlooked. Oh, that's right next to the road. And that's only a two acre patch of brush. Now, nobody, nobody worth their salt is going to be hunting there. And that's why Mr. Big is betting there Mm -hmm. because he does what he's supposed to do. He's dead. <laughs> right. He's not Mr. Big. Um, or there's that any type of, for some reason, if we must be allergic to water, because if you can't cross water in, in rubber boots, if you've got a God help, you, if you got to put on hip boots, you're going to lose 95% of the other hunters. Right. You know, and if you got to drag out a canoe, you just lost 99% of the other hunters. <laughs> right? You know, um, or that uh, some public ground I hunted down in Illinois, it was two gut-busting ridges. The ground itself was pummeled. But I'll tell you what, you got, off, you got over that first ridge, and you had that thing to yourself. Mm-hmm. The, what ends up, ha- the way the way mature, there's different ways, as well, obviously, but generally, the way bucks live to maturity on heavily hunted ground, is they find those pockets, we don't go and they spend their daylight there and they'll move freely within that pocket during daylight because they know they're safe there but they almost never leave that pocket till after dark and they get their tail back in there before first light if they don't they didn't make it to maturity because there's too many of us out there trying to kill them on those heavily pressured grounds do that same with your property when you're surround I mean, when you're surrounded by great by neighbors that that think and act exactly like you do man join the club you know, join that club and and run with it if you're surrounded by neighbors that do not have the same opinions on hunting as you do turn your property into that pocket now every time every time that buck busts that neighbor getting out, out of his stand Every time he's out there running around the day before deer season. Every time <clears throat> every time he's paying no attention to the odor, to, to where his odors are blowing whatsoever, that is a that can be a beautiful thing for you as long as the deer feel safe on your ground. That does not mean you cannot hunt the snot out of your property. You sure can. Perception is reality for deer, everybody As it is for humans If they do not see you If they do not smell you If they do not hear you You weren't there Right So If you're going to do That's one of the biggest things I do with habitat plants Those types of setups Do not occur naturally Very often at all So manufacture them Really Before Before a person ever Does anything to their habitat Sit down First get to know it Get to know your deer. Clearly identify your goals. What are some realistic goals that I can accomplish here? And then make a plan before you ever hit the woods. Now, make a thorough plan to to tie all this stuff together to create a flow of deer traffic through your property that works for you, not against you. And make it so that you can hunt them out of low impact stands. Because if you, the majority of your hunting is out of low impact stands, then your entire property just became a sanctuary. Okay. And when your property is a sanctuary and your neighbors are out there running around the woods, doing things completely different than you are more power to them, buddy. Cause all they're doing is spooking deer. And when they spook deer, guess where deer head to the area within their home range that they feel safe. Make that your property and you've got a beautiful, beautiful thing working for you. And, and to go ahead and try to make it so that all this fits, <laughs> going full circle back to what you were saying, is those little time wasters on your ground are a big deal. The more time that you can get him to waste on your property, the higher the odds are that you're going to be the one who shoots him. If, if he's a buck you want to shoot, if he's a buck that you want to get another year on, you know what? That neighbor on the other side of the fence, he has every right in the world to shoot that buck. Just like you have every right in the world to get him to waste time on your ground during daylight so he's not jumping that fence till after dark.
0: You made, you made a lot of really good points during that, during the, the, uh, that part of the discussion, you
4: there's during my lecture <laughs> during your
0: lecture. It was, it was fantastic. There was three takeaways that I had from it. I was jotting down, um, as things that I've learned to make them to almost make a bite size. Was number one, especially if you have folks that are on your on your property lines, or if you're hunting public ground, or whatever the case might be. And this is just something that I've come to learn. It kind of fits really nicely with what you just had mentioned. Was number one is have no ego. I think a lot of guys overlook certain parcels of ground because, as you said, you know, no hunter worth their salt would be caught dead in that spot because it doesn't seem like you. It's not manly enough or not hunter worthy enough. But a lot of times that's where those big bucks are laying because just for that reason specifically. So when I hit the deer woods is number one is to drop my ego and, and look, if
4: you don't, if you don't mind me cementing your point there, I'm yeah. sitting in my office as I, as I speak right now. Um, this is where my wife lets me keep most of my deer mounts. Right. <laughs> she doesn't want them in every room of the house, I know, right? but I, I, I almost made an off-color joke. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't see any reason why it wouldn't inspire great things in the bedroom. Right. You well, know? <laughs> let's just leave it at that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, I you know, I get happy every time I look at it. Exactly. I can't imagine. Exactly. I can't imagine why other people wouldn't as well. Um, but three of the bucks that I'm looking at as we talk uh, came from. Exact situation you're talking about where there's no way in heck I'm going to hunt there. I'm not some stupid kid. Well, that's why. And actually, I did a bunch years ago when I was needed writing work, I did a bunch of big buck profiles for different magazines. And you're talking for typical, it had to be a minimum, minimum of 185. Wow. You know, non typical, you were looking at a minimum of 230. Jeez. Two things that surprised me by that, one, um, that, oh, about half the bucks, not quite, but amazingly close to half the bucks I did profiles of came from ground that any one of your listeners could have hunted, and you and I as well. Now, the other thing that jumped out at me is, hmm, at least half of them were shot by kids and first-time hunters.
0: I read that actually, and I was going to make mention of that. And it's you don't send the the kid to your prime hunting spot. You send him to where no one else wants to go, and there's a chance that no one has been there in years because everyone views it as a, a poor deer density or a poor deer hunting spot.
4: Or it's that pocket right next to the road that you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Let's send. But let, let's send George there. This is George's first year. He don't know no better.
0: <laughs> right. Or let's send him up on top of that ridge where no one wants to hike to because it's a brutal hike
4: exactly yeah yeah Yeah. yeah. So, sec- so you're you're 100 right I, i'm sorry now I'll, i just wanted to cement your point on that but have no ego when it comes to this type of stuff people yeah. <laughs> you know because that's what that's what costs you chances at, at deer
0: <laughs> yeah no and that was a good point to kind of cement it and i'm glad you mentioned the uh, that writing the profile that you did because I, I did read that and it was it was really kind of open opened my eyes but my my second point was to work harder Um, To go to those places that no one's willing to go to, go over that second ridge or that second knob that's going to take you an extra 40 minutes because that's going to probably pay dividends. And the third one is, and I always like whenever I hear you talk about this, is to use others' influence. And you don't just do it whenever you're dealing with hunters. I've I've listened to you and, and, and read things that you've written where you talk about using the negative influence of even cameras to to position deer in a certain area of a of a food plot or a field or you know, to move them in a certain direction, knowing that they're going to have avoidance of a certain camera because of the flash. So it's using those types of things to in you know to you know those those negative influencers to your advantage.
4: Withhold as I said, our greatest weapon is our mind. If we use it to its fullest, we can and be creative. We are blessed and cursed today. We're blessed in the I'll tell you what. I, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking, Clint? I'm
0: um, uh, 39. 39.
4: Okay, you, you can. You're right at the edge of being able to relate to this. Now I'm. I got uh, 13 years on you. Um, when I was when I was 13 years old, and desperate, desperate for any whitetail knowledge I could get my hands on, I'd go down to the barren Wisconsin public library, and there were two books. That was it. On the entire library, you know, um, on hunting, and one that was more. One of the two was more on on uh, ballistics than hunting. You know, and the right. one that was hunting wasn't that good. Um, but <laughs> that's beside. <a> <laughs> um, today, oh man, anybody who has the internet and a computer has way more information than they could possibly digest, and that is great in that. An over-underlying an over theme of most of the writing is a system for hunting bucks. This is how you hunt them early season. This is how you hunt them uh, during the scrape phase. This is how you hunt them during the chase phase. This is how you hunt them during the rut, post-rut, and uh, second rut, uh, which the second rut is a misnomer. It's really does, uh, doe fawns but right. their first Coming into this whole idea that we're, that, oh, the population is skewed, so all these does are running around unbred, and nubbin buck can breed a doe. doe I'm not saying it never happens that a doe goes unbred, but not at any significant level to speak of whatsoever. Um, <clears throat> but that, that's good because you should go ahead and cater your hunting tactics to what the bucks want at that time. You know, you do that, it only makes sense your success credit is going to go up. But people aren't doing anywhere near the stupid stuff I did when I was a kid, (laughs) because I didn't know any better. And you you know what? Nine times out of ten, it was a magnificently glorious disaster. Right. But that tenth time, it actually worked. (laughs) You know, um, when, when there isn't information people tend to try stuff. They, they try to figure it out on their own. When there is a bunch of information out there, people say, Oh, this is the way you do it. So I'm going to do it. Be creative, be creative. And you can do so much more. Now, I am going to say it one more time and then I'll, I'll try not to say it again. Cause it's gotta be getting sickening, but your mind is by far your most powerful weapon.
0: Yeah. hundred percent agree with that. It's a, uh... I can relate to that because, you know, it's even though you might have 13 years on me, I I, uh, I grew up in an area where uh, you know, we didn't have Internet or cable. You know, I don't I never had a computer until I, you know, probably the early 2000s. I don't think, you know, that was when I finally got a got a computer and actually had readily available Internet access and so forth. Sure. Um, you know, so there was definitely a lot of those mistakes Being made, I used to think, you know, when I was a kid growing up hunting with my dad, it was rifle hunting, you know, and that was kind of what we did. It was, I thought there was really only one good spot on our entire property to hunt because I was the only one that saw deer every morning and they were coming running off of a field from being shot at the neighbor. And I would usually get a crack at like 830. And if it didn't happen at 830, well then (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. my season was pretty much over at that point, you know, because I just didn't understand. Um, you know, how to look for the right, the right type of sign and how to scout and, and, and stuff like that. It was just learning by, by trial and error. You know, it's like I jumped more deer than I ever saw walk in my life uh, as a kid growing up.
4: Well, as a camera guy, a buddy that I went to high school with, I trained him to use camera because when I first started, these companies that I was pro-staffing for, we're sending professional camera guys out to film me, in, and I hated that. It right. um, just drove, drove me nuts. I did it one year, and I'm like, no way. <laughs> and at this point, I wasn't in a position where I could tell these companies no. So I'm like, all right, how do I solve a lot? I'll train some friends that actually know how to hunt, how to use cameras. Uh, <clears throat> that public ground I was talking about in Illinois, he came down with me. No. And this was one of our first out of, yeah, I think it was his first out of state hunt. It was like my second or third. Um, and he's like, Steve, why couldn't we be growing up down here? Can you imagine the deer you'd we'd have on our walls? And as I told him, I'm thankful as heck we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in northern Wisconsin where you saw a doe. You saw a doe a hundred yards away while you were out bow hunting. Man, you were the hero of the high school for a month. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you just that you you just saw a deer, so you had to keep working and working. You either you either didn't see deer, or you kept working until you you figured things out. Right. You know, and yeah, the school. Of, I'll tell you what, the school of hard knocks is a dang good teacher.
0: Yeah, it's for a- those
4: that listen
3: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it certainly it certainly is and that was kind of the school i guess that i kind of I, I, I kind of learned from uh was 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 that approach but you know like you said i wouldn't have it any other way because I, yeah, I grew up hunting you know still live in pennsylvania and uh it's a tough state to hunt you know
4: it's you learn how to hunt them. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah it's a it's a tough it's a tough state to hunt um you know especially yep. if you're looking for a certain class of deer and and, and stuff like that and you definitely have to you know, you, as you mentioned earlier, you have to kind of make a plan and you also have to kind of set your expectations for the place, place that you're hunting, you know, and one of the things that is, you know, hurtful, I, th- I think sometimes, um, you know, I'm thankful for a lot of the stuff that the outdoor industry does, um, and, you know, and promoting hunting and, uh, as, as so, so long as it's the correct way and, and ethically, um, you know, I think some of the places where it's, it's harmful to a degree, you know, especially whenever you start looking at social media and stuff like that, and I hear, you know, I hear and see all these people that, potentially, you know, willing to pass on deer, and I'm not here to tell anybody how they should hunt or what they should hunt, but their expectations for where they live, if I if I kind of know where they live, you know, especially if they're in Pennsylvania, and they're looking at all these wall hangers, these guys are, you know, you know, harvesting on these outdoor shows, and I'm just like, that's not, that isn't a realistic level of expectation to really have for the state of PA, you know what I mean, just the state in general, I mean, you do have some decent deer here, but that 150 inch deer in Pennsylvania is few and far between, it's not like you're Hunting Ohio or Iowa or Illinois or you know any of the big buck states, and you know I, I feel like some people get yeah. disappointed, you know, and don't have quite the experience they could have because their expectations have been skewed by what they've seen those uh, in 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 the outdoor industry who have the ability to hunt those types of lands or that produce those type of deer, um, and just kind of gives them you know a bad taste in their mouth for their season if it's if they're not harvesting something to that level.
4: Oh, I, I couldn't couldn't possibly agree more when, when you started the first sentence on that, one of the things my mind leapt to, I'm going to have to ask him if he minds, if I jump on a soapbox for a second, please. Um, but you did, you did most of it for me, frankly, <laughs> <laughs> um, The, the wor- but I will add this, the worst possible, well here, let, let's put it this way instead, the very best hunters I know, all of them, none of them are in the industry. Absolutely none. Right. You know, um <clears throat> the the next thing I, to I don't know how deep I should get into this, but the industry really, you know, these TV shows, and this is not a bash on them; they have pressure. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would not, I am thankful as heck the only TV stuff I do is with, uh, deer and deer hunting TV, the, the magazines, television show. And for some reason there, I I don't have to kill a thing. All I have to do is talk. (laughs) That's great. I love that. Okay. You couldn't get me to be a member of a real TV show. (laughs) You know, a shoot 'em up TV show. Deer and deer hunting is not a shoot 'em up show. It's more of an educational thing. Is why they let me get away with that. But the pressure these these hunters are under to kill is intense. Mm-hmm. And what do they do? No, I'm not saying there aren't any exceptions or anything like that because, of course, there are. But the overwhelming majority do nothing but go from guided hunt to guided hunt to guided hunt to guided hunt to guided hunt. To guided hunt. And I know back when I was consulting for outfitters. It sure would it sure would be interesting to listen to their wrap-up interviews mm-hmm. after the hunt <laughs> um, here the night before that here you know the, the outfitter himself left this this uh, this little two acre alfalfa field plot 100% alone all the way up to the rut because Billy Bob's coming in. Mm. Now, Billy Bob and and Billy Bob Hunting TV, they're going to be here on November 4th, okay? Mm -hmm. So, we're running cameras back there. There's this 160-inch buck who's coming out pretty darn regularly. Billy Bob and his crew shows up the night before. You know, the outfitter shows him pictures of the buck he's going to set him up on, you know, and and takes him out to the stand the next morning, climbs in it, you know, and then the buck ends up coming through and the guy kills it. And talks about how he just patterned this deer, and yeah. how they've been yeah. studying, and, and all this junk. Um, it's TV is entertainment. Right. The overwhelming majority of hunting TV shows are pure, one hundred percent entertainment. Yeah. And you are a hundred percent correct. The worst possible way there is to judge a hunter's quote unquote skill levels is by the amount of inches he has on the wall. Right. And I mean don't get me wrong, I got a whole bunch of inches and it doesn't mean squat. Right. You know, because fifty percent I can jump up on a soapbox, stick my chest out, and proudly proclaim that every Every deer I have ever shot has come out of a stand that I've scouted and myself and all this stuff. And, you know, I spent 50% of every hunting season hunting public ground or or public and or ground that virtually anybody can go to. A lot of it's private, just enrolled with certain programs. Um, and, oh, man, I, I, I do that. I'm down there in the trenches with you. And the other 50% is just stupid. (laughs) Um, It is so, so, so much easier to kill a mature buck when there's 10 mature bucks running around on your property versus one that once or twice might come through. Right. And those 10 mature bucks, our pants on head stupid because they have no idea what hunting pressure is. It's really, really easy for me to look smart there. Mm -hmm. Really easy. And every year I hunt those other grounds, I get my share of humble pie.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because I, 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 there was a point in time where I used to enjoy just the entertainment of those shows and then I kind of, it, it, it waned for me. Um, there is one I, I've kind of leaned now more toward watching those who are doing, you know, what I'll call um, hunting, you know, uh, online web shows uh, okay. because I feel them to be a lot more genuine. I'm not sure. It's actually a fellow uh, uh, Badger, if you will, this uh, this fella, his name's Curtis Zobel. He has a, um, a show called Behind the Bow. And he's, I think you would really like him if you didn't, haven't heard of him already. He's a young uh, guy. He's like 26 years old and it's all public land. And he is just a grinder oh. and captures everything that he's doing, you know, on public land from doing what you're talking about, using like hip boots, wading across rivers and canoes. Like you, that's just his mentality. Um, and I really enjoy watching his because he shows you every success, every failure, and there's no... There's no, uh, you know, he shoots a deer in Missouri and it wasn't like 160 inch deer, but man, he put in some work for that deer and it it might as well have been 220 inches, you know, as happy as he was with that deer. Um, And those are the things I think I lean toward more, those types of shows, because I think there's less pressure um, and to not less pressure on the deer, but less pressure on the person hunting. So you actually see the honest hunt and the caliber of deer they're after. Sure, they'd like to shoot a nice buck, but for them, it's really about matching wits with a nice cagey. Um, you know, veteran of the whitetail uh, woods, if you will, um, going after mature deer versus inches, um, which is nice.
4: Well, go, Going back to what you said earlier, you know, when we first started talking about how, yeah, we might end up talking about some of the stuff that's going on. That, that's why this stuff goes on. Yeah. For, for those regular hunting shows, I, I'll never forget. Um, years, years ago, Pat Reeve and I were really good friends. Um, and he had just, he had just started North America. He was the one who actually pushed North American white Tail to have a TV show. And it was his first year. in. And, and here it is, here it is October 1st. And he's a mess. He's a mess. Cause he's only killed three bucks so far this year wow. <laughs> by October. Three. Yeah. O- o- only three. <laughs> And I'm like, Pat, you got know, all it hasn't even got good yet. Yeah, but we need I need to, but but yeah, I guess I can't really get into much tea. Um he wasn't impressed with his team at the time. <laughs> you know, in, in what they were getting done. So it's all on me and I've got I gotta I've gotta kill what was it? like he thought in his head that he had to kill twenty six bucks in a season for God's sakes.
0: Well wow, that man, I can't even fathom that number.
4: If, and so that's that that's incredible pressure mm-hmm. and I, I was lucky because i one thing that i when you ask how i got into this what i failed to mention is first seven eight years i had a day job right i was getting i was getting up at uh at six o'clock to go to work get home around five thirty, spend till eight nine o'clock with the. Uh, with the short people running mm-hmm. around the house, and the, and the ex-wife, and then right until two o'clock in the morning. Yep, and get up at six yep. and go to work to do the same for eight years. I, I'm sure some people are not gonna are gonna think I'm exaggerating, but for eight years, I bet you there wasn't there wasn't a grand total of two weeks time of weekdays. That I didn't get up at six and, uh, um, end up staying up until two o'clock at night writing. Yep. You know, I did that because I somehow was accidentally smart enough to realize that I don't want that career, Right. the <laughs> career with, I want to, I've got a good day job. I'm not, I wasn't rich by any means, but a good day job mm-hmm. for the area, um, I'm not giving up that security blanket unless this is exactly what I want. Right. And, and that type of pressure, oh, man, it, it makes people do really, really, really incredibly stupid things. Not everybody, but yeah, I can't, I'm not, don't, please don't take this wrong. I think that you break a, you knowingly make a game violation, your career better be done. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a. I definitely have some, you know, sympathy for someone who's going to a different. Uh, not, oh, I shouldn't say sympathy, but I can understand if you're going to another state and hunting, and you've brushed up on the game laws in that state, and you've and you've made an honest mistake, and you report it when you should report it, you know, and you and you own it. Um, that's someone I can look at and say, hey, it's you know, everyone has a oh. mistake, you know, and it's like, and that's understandable. Um, but from what I understand, the gentleman that had a you know, quote unquote, mistake this past in the past, you know, couple weeks, um, you know, it wasn't his first rodeo as far as game violations were concerned. Um, and just, it seemed as though the, the ev- evidence that alleged that he was, in, you know, did something, you know, on video, um, just seemed a little bit damning.
4: When you tell the camera guy, we're going to have to get, I mean, assuming this is true. Right. Um, I just read the, the article on from the local paper, um, for where this occurred. If you turn and tell the camera guy on tape, we've got to get rid of that elk kill. Right. Ignorance is, I mean, I know ignorance isn't a defense to begin with, but you just threw even the benefit of the doubt out the window there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah.
4: When you tell the cameraman on tape, we broke the law, now we've got to cover it up. Kind of hard to pretend you didn't know.
0: Yeah, it's a. Uh, but yeah. I mean,
4: honest, honest mistakes. We're all human. I mean, heck, I'm as far from I'm as far from perfect as as can be. And if you don't believe me, I can wake up the wife, and she'll be more than happy to tell you. <laughs> um, uh, I hear,
0: ya. I hear but, you.
4: But but yeah, knowingly, no. As I said, I, I I'm not make. Don't no, please don't take this as me making an excuse for these guys, because frankly, they. No, it's not. But that is human nature. You put unbelievable amounts of pressure on people. They tend to do some, the weaker ones tend to do stupid things.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, they all sign up for it. So they have to, they they own it, you know. But it's, you're you're 100% correct. It's like pressure will do interesting things to humans but I want to be sensitive to your to your time here Steve and I do have one more question that I absolutely wanted to get to with you today cuz right. it's something I found extremely interesting and we're going to just shift gears here a, a little bit I want to get into hunting um you know bucks during the rut specifically um or pre-rut into rut I guess you could say um cuz I was reading your big buck secret uh, book it actually helped me get through a a snow delay while I was in uh, Orlando on vacation this past year. It snowed and I had to stay for an extra day, so I sat poolside and was able to catch up on some reading, which was good. And uh, cool. yeah, and, and one thing that you mentioned in there that I thought was really really interesting because as I was reading this section of the book, I was thinking of a couple of the properties that I hunt and how I can kind of better position myself on the on the property to have better sightings or more frequent sightings during you know pre rut and rut and you mentioned something about you know using d- dominant doe families versus low end doe families during different fa- phases of of breeding and you'll kind of use that that kind of i guess criteria to determine what who the dominant doe family is and then how they all kind of i guess stack in succession chronologically and that mm-hmm. how the bucks are going to follow those dominant doe families in succession based on when they cycle in for breeding so can you talk a little bit about that and how you use that to position yourself in terms of stands and so forth
4: certainly and to to start off i've got to say right up front that this is not going to apply for everyone it it flat out will not um what, what you're looking at where this where this works the best by far is on properties that have way too many deer um to the point where the where the the habitat itself just cannot cannot support them at a health, healthy level. You know, I'm not saying that deer are dropping over dead of starvation all over, but they're nowhere near. They're nowhere near as healthy as they could be because when you have too many, too many deer on a, on a property, what they do is they literally wipe out wipe out their preferred food sources. So then they start working on their secondary food sources and their tertiary food sources and just keep going on down the line to the point where next thing you know they're eating stuff that's starvation food. Um, in situations like that, you know, where these deer they're they're under some stress. We do not we do not give social stress anywhere near the credit it deserves when it comes to the whitetail world. Social stress is a big deal. Um but in those specific situations, now, you're dominant, just like when it comes to we were talking about uh, betting before. I could, without even thinking, probably list just 30, 40, 50 different spots where I am supremely confident that there's that there's a mature buck betting there.. Now, why? Because it's the best betting spot in the area. And yeah, the mature buck that was betting there when I found it, he's long dead. but guess what? It's the best betting spot in the area. Therefore, your dominant buck or one of them is going to be bedded there every stinking year. Now, um, it's applying that same premise to this now. Okay, um, <clears throat> your uh, when your dominant groups take the very best, like that buck bedding area. Okay? The family groups take what they see as the best doe bedding area they frequent the best food source they frequent the best water source the best of everything okay because they are the dominant group don't family groups the what it they consist of typically a matriarch doe and a bunch of her daughters and a bunch of her granddaughters and a bunch of her great great grandchildren um <clears throat> and even including uh they're year a year-and-a-half old bucks up until the rut sometimes. Um, there's a hierarchy between them very similar to within the buck world. Okay? That that alpha doe that's got a nasty attitude and has got an army of, army of relatives behind her, she's going to take the best of everything. And if food sources are limited, the second she comes out to that food source, her group's gonna nine times out of t- uh, eight times out of ten drive all the other deer off the darn thing because <laughs> this is mine. Okay. So then your secondary group tends to take the second best stuff on down the line. You get down in an overpopulated habitat that just does not pump out the nutrition anymore for the number of deer on it. You get down to those low end groups and life stinks. <laughs> <laughs> they got the worst of everything. Okay, um, sure, they'll have plenty of cover and food right this time of year. But now what happens when all those weeds and grasses out in the timber start to die? I, oh, geez, life gets tough. So so that's one part of it. The other part of it is we touched on the second rut a little bit earlier. Um, that's actually the other part. The other part is that... <clears throat> First off, um, and I know this is getting way too darn complicated to follow all of it, but first off, uh, your healthiest dose tend to come in estrus first. Mm-hmm. You now, every scientific study I have ever seen flat out states that this whole idea that the moon moon has anything to do with breeding is a bunch of baloney. Now, they'll do fetus studies on uh, on roadkill does and guess what? The moon is different for five years in a row but yet the majority of them backdate to the exact same time. All right. You know, um, <clears throat> it's for midwestern and northern deer. It's based on the photo period. You drop a fawn too early, you could drop it in the snow and it could die. You drop it too late, it doesn't have a chance to grow enough to survive the first winter. Um, mother nature is a very cruel yet effective dictator, um, so your healthiest does tend to come in estrus first. Your least healthy tend to come in last. All right, so now let's go ahead and try to put all this stuff together. Now, your dominant family groups have the best everything. Well, they better be the healthiest then, shouldn't they? Mm-hmm. So they're probably going to have the first dose to come into estrus. Okay. So when I want to go ahead and set up on a if I if we've got a good weather front coming through, by good weather front I mean it's been it's been in the fifties for the last four, five, six days and all of a sudden, ooh, sookie, it's gonna be in the it's gonna be in the low forties tomorrow. That's a great deer as long as, as long as there aren't howling winds with it or intense storms, that's a great deer weather movement day. You know, you can all but you can all but guarantee that those bucks are going to be up on their feet earlier. They're going to be feeling their oats a little bit. Now, hmm, this might be a really good day to set up on a doe bedding area. Because even though we sit there and say that the rut in Wisconsin, my area of Wisconsin, the peak breeding phase every year starts around the 6th or the 7th, goes through about the, goes through about the 15th. That's when the majority of does get bred in my specific pocket. But does are bred before and after. And they don't all fit in this little window. So on October 20th, I I got that weather front coming through. This might not be a bad day to go out and hunt a doe bedding area. I'm going to hunt the dominant doe bedding area, the downwind side, because that has the highest odds of actually having a doe in estrus. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean there will be one but it has the highest odds. And these bucks that are now three and a half, four and a half years old, some of them have figured that out. Mm-hmm. Okay. They know their home range. They know their home range intimately. okay, And even, and they know all the family groups on their home range and all this good stuff. Um, or they tend to be all that type of stuff. Uh, and let's pretend that, you know, this is a buck that doesn't even know anything about this. Now, but hmm, he smells an attractive odor. He's going to go check it out. Now, um, so early season, what I do, the earliest, the earliest quote unquote rut hunts I do are on the downwind side of dominant family group bedding areas Mm -hmm. because they offer the highest odds of actually attracting Mr. Big. Now you get, Once you get into the peak breeding phase itself, I mean, we're like, let's say, use Wisconsin dates for my pocket. It's November 10th, November 10th. I'm going to be hunting virtually any, no, any doe group there is out there outside of that, that most subordinate doe group, because they are the ones that are most nutritionally stressed. Therefore they should be the unhealthiest. Therefore they should be coming into estrus last. Now you get to the 16th. You know, towards this is a day after the peak. Now, now all of a sudden that that uh, um, subordinate doe bedding area looks attractive because their does should be starting to come in now. And then now you get all the way to you get all the way to uh, December. I want to be hunting those dominant family groups again because how do their fawns achieve estrus? fawns achieve estrus by hitting certain physical and physiological thresholds they have to they have to grow up to a point you know both physically and physiologically because your dominant doe groups um can the dominant does within them tend to get bred first they tend to be dropping their fawns first and assuming they survive fine they tend to be the healthiest and they're the ones that end up generally speaking come into estrus that first year at least first, that first year. So that's how I end up trying to take advantage of that for, you know, the quote unquote second rut. It really, I know I promised earlier that I wouldn't do this again, but it really all comes back to that same thing that I said. Our, po- our po- most powerful weapon is our mind. You know, you cannot, if you really want to take your game to the next level, do what I said about, uh, <clears throat> about questioning sign question it don't just find it try to understand as much as you can about it and understand as much as you can about deer the more you do the more all of a sudden if you think analytically and think creatively you can come up with stuff i mean i i've never i quite honestly that's one of the few things that i think i came up with myself (laughs) I, i went ahead and tried to uh spent about 10 years after I came up with it to try to prove it wrong
3: right?
4: Uh, and wasn't able to. Now, as I said, this is not going to work for every single hunter out there. Heck, it's not even going to work for probably much more than 25% of them. Mm. You need the high deer population numbers and you need to learn your doe groups. And learning your doe groups isn't anywhere near as complicated as it seems. You're sitting on that food plot. You watch that doe group come out oh, here comes the second doe group. Who avoids who? Right. You know, the, the subordinate one's going to avoid the more dominant one. Okay, if one of them gets chased off, guess what? The one doing the chasing is more dominant than the one doing the running. Right. You know, the, none keep it simple, stupid, nothing. None, none of this stuff is rocket science. Right. Absolutely. None of it is we're dealing and don't take this wrong. I respect deer more than I do most people, but <laughs> we're dealing with dumb animals, right? It's, okay. That's, that's all they are is dumb animals that give us a tremendous amount of pleasure.
0: A hundred percent agree. It's, I try to take the approach where, um, I try not to overthink things, you know, it's like, I've gotten into those situations. I think we probably all have as, as, as bow hunters specifically, because you, know, the close quarters that you have to kind of get into, yep. but I try to, I've gotten into situations where I've had, you know, paralysis by analysis, or I've overanalyzed so much. So, you know, so thoroughly that I could not make a decision because I was really to, to the point of splitting hairs. Um, so now it's like, I usually just try to take a step back and look at the bigger picture And kind of make my plan from that perspective and, and, and just use my instinct, you know, my hunter instinct a little bit more, trust my gut a little bit more and, and, and certainly trust my eyes. You know, that's the one thing I think that you, you know, we sometimes get so wrapped up into our own brains over it that we, we forget to trust the things that, um, that man had long before we had any technology (laughs) that they had to use to survive. And they, and they did just well, uh, did just well by it.
4: Oh, I agree completely, especially when it comes to trusting your gut. I mean, any time my gut's telling me to do something really, I mean, is screaming, I'm not saying I got it. uh, I'm trying to preface this in a way because I could see this being used really easy for you know what, I killed a buck in that high-impact stand in the middle of my property last year, so I got a feeling I'm going to kill him there. No, you want to go there because you killed a buck there once. Right. Um, and it's probably not a good idea to trash your entire property on opening day. Okay? Right. Um, but when when I've got an honest-to-God strong gut feeling, the only time – the only time I'm disappointed is when I don't listen.
0: <sighs> right. Yeah. Exactly.
4: So trust, trust your instincts. Mean, when your instincts are sincerely trying to tell you something, I don't. I, I personally believe it's your subconscious. But, right. um, but when it's trying to tell
0: listen <laughs> it's uh, I just use that same rule of thumb when, when when i'm at home with my wife i'd be a lot further ahead in, in life most likely but that's probably a topic <laughs> for a different podcast but steve i do want to be sensitive to your time i do appreciate you spending you know you know over you know an hour and a half with us here today talking deer hunting it's been uh it's been a pleasure for me i've been looking forward to having you on for a long time but before i let you go if you wouldn't mind just let the folks out there listening know where they can find out more information about you and your uh, and your work
4: um. Well, if you ever want to read any articles, you know, Deer and Deer Hunting, Buckmasters, North American Whitetail. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm in every one of them, but every issue of every one, but pretty close. Um, I do two different web series that are 100% free. Um, they both run on Deer and Deer Hunting's Facebook account and on their homepage and YouTube as well. One of them is Growing, growing Big. That's an every other week show on habitat improvement and deer management. They're just little four or five-minute shows. Um, what I do is I film myself while I'm out working. <laughs> um, and this is this is what I do. I'm not telling anybody that they should do this themselves or any. All I'm doing is... Sharing, this is what I do. These are the mistakes I've made. These are my victories. Now, I'm going to just try to take an individual topic that I'm working on at that time and cover that. Uh, That runs every other week, year round. And then I do a Hunt'em Big Show, web show that, again, for deer and deer hunting. Again, just four or five minute episodes on hunting tips that run every other week during season. And on my own Facebook account, that's just, you know, Facebook slash Steve Bartella, uh, I'm starting to, uh, I'm actually, should have listened to the wife on this one. She's been pushing me to do this for 12 years already, telling me that I'm not smart by not doing it. Um, but I have recently started putting a bunch of stuff up on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still hashing out the, the exact sequence um, of what I'm all going to put out there, but, uh, and geez, um, any of the books you can get off of, uh, off of Amazon's the cheapest, um, or food plots dash four deer.com. You can buy them off of there as well. That was the site I helped create years ago for photo evaluations and I sold them, but they're still selling the books there. And if somebody wants one, you know, the guy's doing it. I trained myself. They are really good. Uh, I don't know. Oh, and Deer and Deer Hunting TV, I think they moved it to the Pursuit Channel. I'll be honest with you. When you were talking TV earlier, I can't remember the last TV show I watched.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm in the same boat. I'm in the same boat. I cut the cable a while ago, and uh, it's all, all internet and streaming for me. I find I get more work done that way.
4: Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I, I'm i just not the type of person who can sit and watch a lot of TV to begin with. Yeah. But the I don't watch hunting TV for pretty much what you already said. Right.
0: But hey, uh, so for everyone out there listening, I will say, you know, I've, I've of course, as I mentioned, I've followed you across a multitude of mediums and always find it, you know, enjoyable, number one. Number two, very informational. Um, a lot of the changes I've made, to my habitat approach on on the our both of our family farms and how I approach hunting has definitely been influenced by things I've picked up from Steve so I urge everyone to kind of either pick up a book check out all the different you know, video stuff that he's doing His Facebook page, always great tips There every week, even if you only have a few Quick minutes over lunch, you know, during the course Of a week, it's a great place to go to get Some quick information that's free um, And Steve, before I let you go I will offer my services for an intro If you ever should need one for a speaking Engagement, I'm available for you, my, f- my friend
4: <laughs> I, I, it was, uh, I was sitting there listening To you thinking, dang, I'm good <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, sir. Well, I do appreciate your time. You have a, have a good rest of your afternoon, and uh, I hope to be talking to you again soon.
4: I'd love to do it again, and I just want to wrap up by thanking you for having me on and your audience. I mean, I, I know this sounds incredibly cheesy, but man, I can't mean it more, possibly mean it more sincerely. I, I, I don't do what I'm doing if it isn't for the people supporting my work, and man, that's a debt that, that I can never repay. <laughs>
0: Well, we we thank you for what what you uh what you help us with as well. So it's a uh, it's reciprocated, I'm sure. There we go. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I want to thank Steve for joining us and sharing a ton of awesome information. Be sure to follow him on his Facebook page. Steve does a weekly tip on his Facebook page that is like a mini lecture on deer behavior, habitat management, and everything in between. So you definitely want to check that out. Also, you can find him on Deer and dot com, uh, where he does a webisode or an internet TV uh, or internet video show. And as you can also find his writings in the deer and deer hunting magazine, as well as a multitude of other places. And be sure to check out any of the books that Steve has written. Also want to thank all of you for tuning in and giving me part of your day. Uh, Be sure to hit the iTunes subscribe button. So you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. And if you feel so inclined and are enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star iTunes rating. We would be uh, very much appreciative of that. Um, also, you might want to follow along with the Truth From The Stand Instagram page and Facebook pages if you haven't already done that. And if you'd like to get involved in the show or have us, uh, John and I, or a guest answer your questions uh, or just would like to recommend a topic for us to, uh, to, to uh, discuss or tackle, email me those suggestions at truthfromthestand@gmail.com at gmail.com or click the email button on our Instagram account and leave us a note. And finally, I need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to make this podcast possible Whitetail Institute of North America, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands. And until next time, we'll see
3: y'all.